Amen. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 to start. And zip on through. See if we can all tie it together. Y'all know what a linchpin is? Linchpin? Not a lynching. It's different. Linchpin? Well, there's one right there holding that wheel on. And uh, linchpins, in the physical sense, keep something together. The more modern ones will have a spring on them to help keep them in place as they go along. But a linchpin can also be a person or a concept, a central idea that ties everything together. When a person's a linchpin, they're the one that becomes the center of what goes on around them to keep it all going and, and flowing together. You know, in, in, uh, in churches, you know who the, the most important person usually is? Secretary. <laughs> I mean, what happens in the office, really, you can, there are so many things they don't have to have, preachers or, or ministers or all kinds of other things. But, you know, if we don't have organization to keep things flowing around, we find out who matters and how that comes together. When we have those kind of concepts in families, you'll have somebody who tends to keep everything coordinated. But you, in life, there are times there are things and concepts that kind of join everything together and, and keep it joined and, and make it happen because of the importance, the central part of it. So in Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us some, some thoughts. First off, first three verses, and we're not going to dive into these, but I want to get them started just to get us where I want us to go. Because there he talks about, as a prisoner for the Lord then, it's like now he gets to continue his thought that he started earlier in, in chapter 3 and got distracted. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And there he begins with this idea that we, we need to live life to reflect who we are, whose we are, what God has done in us. And, and in that, he, he describes it as being who we are and, and how we live our lives. To be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit. One, you know, he, gives, he gives us seven ones as he puts that all together. So he, he gives this definition saying that a life that's worthy of the calling is seen in, in these aspects. In our character, how we live our lives how we treat one another, the unity that we have together, and it all joins together in that. Now, the, further on down, he starts to describe, now he dispenses grace to each one. In verse 11, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we are, all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on and talks more about maturity as well. But in that, here we start the, about the life that he wants us to live, being in one, talking about the character that we have with each other. And then he says, here's, here's some things that Jesus has put in place to help us become, to reach unity, to help us become mature, these roles. And so in a sense, he's, in this section, he's getting us pointed in a direction and reminding us of who he wants us to become. So the question becomes... In all of that, we know here's where here's who he wants us to be. A life worthy of the calling. Be these kind of people. Be united. Be one and all that goes on. Here's how here's some people he's put into place to help us get there. If you if you go back over to that section in Ephesians four in talking about all those people that he gives to equip his people for works of service, so that in, in other words, the, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers aren't the central people. 
They're there as support people to help everybody else become who God wants them to be and to serve and, and make the church, help the church become who God wants it to become. Become united, to become mature, be drawn together and all that goes on. So when we look at this idea of change, of how we get from, if we're not united completely to where God, as God wants us to be, how do we get there? If we're not the people in our character that God wants us to be, how do we get there? And I think it's here, beginning of verse 17, that he provides the linchpin. Because it's one thing to talk about. We need to be one. And all of y'all agree with that, right? If you disagree, maybe we need to change the sermon and we'll get back on track. But if we, we, we say we need to be one, and then we say, how do we do that? We can talk about it. We need to be mature in Christ. And we all go, yes. How do we get there? And we, we can stumble around. So in verse 17, I think he provides a central point for us when we talk about we know we're supposed to be changing. What is it that causes us to change? And the first thing he does, when we look at when we're not doing the things that God wants us to do, what's underneath them? So when you look, when you look at the, listen to these verses and tell me what's underneath a life that is not where God wants it to be. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Okay, did y'all catch the terms in there that describe what's underneath the life that they live that, that is away from God? Y'all catch it? We can talk about ignorance. We can talk about the futility of their thinking, darkening their understanding, and uh, having lost all sensitivity. When you, when you start to dig into it, the reason we live as we live is because of the way that we think. And so when we're not where God wants us to be, what we have to do is to get, we look at what we've done and we dig down underneath it and we find out that's why I did it. Our thinking has gotten off track. I mean, we don't set out just to do something on its own. There's usually, there's some kind of thinking in us that gets us there. The reason we might tell a lie to somebody is because we think we're going to get something that's going to protect us, that's going to benefit us. So there's thinking underneath that that leads us to do that. And so we have to find out what is it that got us there. And so for us, if we're going to change that, if we're not, if we're not where God wants us to be, to change it, what we have to address then is what's going underneath. Now, if you think about how is it that we change our thinking? Verse 20 says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And one of the key things he says in, in getting our thinking to be where it needs to be, he says, you were taught. We learn. Somebody, somebody taught us, somebody, or we open up God's word and we taught by what God said in, in those pages. But in the teaching, it's there that we hear what's opposite of, you know, it's there that we hear what God wants us to do so we can correct the thinking that's opposite of it. So it, it gets us back on track so that we can be made new in the attitude of our mind, so that we can put on the new self, so we can be, that we're intended to be the people that God intends for us to be. Because when we get down to it, when we start talking about that, when we start replacing the lies that we tell ourselves 
with what's true, it, it changes how we live. It changes our, our lives in every way. And that's, that's why that's the linchpin in all of this, because if we want to live differently, we have to start with how we think. We have to start with what we believe and what we have, have tell ourselves. And if we tell ourselves things that aren't true, we're going, we're going to make wrong choices. And so he says here, this is what we see when people are off track and they're separated from God. Ultimately, what's underneath there is some thinking that's way off track. And for us to get there, we've got to hear what God has to say so that we can be changed in what's going on inside of us so that we can live how God wants us to be. So when you look at what is it that shows, what will show what we think on the inside? Some of y'all, some of y'all have better, better filter than others. Don't y'all love like four and five year olds? Best people ever in the world. You know why? They'll tell you what they think. They haven't gotten a filter. No matter how much your mom and dad is, shh, it's like they'll, they'll let it all out. But the thing is, is no matter how old we get, however much we believe that we've gotten a filter on ourselves to not say things that we know we shouldn't say, ultimately what we'll find is our words reveal what's going on in us. They, we, we can't hide what's in us. It, it leaks out. And so the way we think will be heard and how we talk. It, it just, it's, that's the way we work. And so ultimately, so he says in verse 25 of, of chapter 4, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for you are all members of one body. So it's not just change how you talk. Ultimately what we have to say is change what you believe that gets you to tell lies so that you will tell the truth. Because what we think will lead us in what we say. And so to change that, we have to change what's going on inside of us. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So he says, based upon what we have going on in us, we can, with our words, we can tear people down or we can build people up. And it begins with our thoughts. It begins with what we believe. What we, need, what we think and, and how that comes out and leaks out into our words. Chapter 5, verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Do you, do you hear the contrast there? Any of you all put that as opposites? Obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. So what we, what we believe, what we think comes out in that. But the opposite, when we change our thinking, will be thanksgiving. The way we see life. The way we see the people around us. And so that, that it's the canary in the coal mine. I, I think primarily the first thing that reveals what's going on in our hearts and our minds is the way that we talk. The second thing is how we handle our emotions and our desires. So verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now he did not say don't become angry which would be an impossible task. Either you're going to stuff it down and you're going to tear up your heart or you're, going to, you're, you're not going to express it well. He said, that what this is, is you, you will get angry at times in life. What do you do with it? And that's going to be based upon what you believe and what you think in your heart. And so he says, don't sin in that anger. The choices that you make, we are the ones that decide what we do with the emotions that go on in our lives. And you need to take care of it. Not see already. Maybe it's best to get angry after sunset, so that you have a good twenty-four hours. Now you're not talking. About, he says, "Don't let it go on. Take care of it. Take care of what goes on. 
And so when he, because ultimately the way we handle our emotions, like anger and such, reveals a lot about us, but it opens us up for all kinds of problems. Uh, verse 20, uh, was this 27, 28? I have that right in my head. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I would bet everybody who steals justifies it in, in their minds. Whether they're stealing something small out of a grocery store or they're stealing millions and millions of dollars on the books through whatever company practices that they have that skirt the law. Stealing is stealing, but we justify it by what we think. And said so the opposite is instead of being worried about what you want, your desire for more and your greed, we care about other people, that we, we do something useful in life where we build up the people around us. We build up in our communities and all that goes on. Chapter 4, verse 31, more, more of the emotion. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And what he expresses there is that the emotional part of things, especially when they're going difficult, when we let them drive what's going on in us, as opposed to, to have our thoughts changed so that we, we are ones controlling and determining what we do with the emotions that we have. Chapter 5, verse 3, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because there is, these are improper for God's holy people. What we do with our desires is based upon what we think about them and what we believe, and so we change that. All right, next go around. Oh, no, I had one more, sorry. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an adulterer, has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. See, those desires still of how we live our lives it will come out as we go along. Now, we go back over to chapter 4, verse 32. Now, verse 31 is where it said, you know, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and slander and all these kind of things. And, and a lot of that comes about based upon how other people may treat us and the wrongs they may do against us. So what do we do when we bump into other people? And those people are kind of rough around the edge and they don't choose the right. And they're choosing wrong. We're going to find those people in the world. But the thing is based upon how we think, will determine our response. And so he says, in that context, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, I've asked you all this before. What has to happen before you can forgive somebody? It's a trick question. You have to back up further than where your mind is. Before you can forgive them, they've got to do something wrong to you. Sometimes we're wrestling with, oh, well, we need to do this. Well, the reality is this says there are things, there are times that people do things that are wrong and hurtful to us. And we've got to decide and in our own hearts and minds, what do we do in that moment? What, who will we be in all of that? And so he talks about that, not only kind of compassion, but being uh, forgiving each other and reflecting that in our lives. Chapter 5, verse 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. A sacrifice to God. And so when he, when he lays this out, it's like, how do, we, how do we live our lives with the people around us? And how we live our lives with the people around us will show what we think, what we believe. Now, in the next couple of sections, he's going he's to give us a couple things about um, how, well, some principles that, that describe who we are. Because who we are will, will come out in how we live, how we see ourselves will come out in how we live, in our identity. So first off, when we talk about, you know, our lives will reflect who we are. First, he says in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So when you talk about darkness and light, what do we do in the dark? You know what I do in the dark? It's about 6 o'clock, the sun's down, and I'm already asking if it's time to go to bed. It starts getting dark, we think about sleep. We sleep in the dark. We do, in, in darkness, we live differently, that we're not aware of what goes on. And so as we, we put that all together, it says, you used to be darkness, things where were, things were hidden. Have you all ever said to your kids or grandkids, nothing good ever happens after uh, midnight? Any of you all ever use that phrase? <laughs> it, generally, it's true. The kids are going, that's just when things get started. It's like, well, you know, it depends on what you want to start. Uh, but in darkness, there are things that go on that we know, okay, that drives. Now, if, I'm, if I am darkness, if I am living in darkness, it'll guide what I do because I feel like that what I do, the choices I make, won't be exposed. They won't be seen. But he says, he turns it around and says, that's not who you are. You're light. You're children of light. And because of who you are, that changes how you live. Your identity determines who you live and how, who you are and how you live your life. And so in all of that, he says, you know, look, you find out what, what God wants. You, you, you know, we talk about the goodness and righteousness and all that, that reflects the light. And he says, live that out because that's who we are and all of that. And so as it comes together, you know, we sleep. And I, I see the part of it, I think, with darkness. When we talk about sleeping, the thing about being asleep is you're not aware. Have you all ever woke up? After a good drive down the highway and realized you're the one driving and you shouldn't have just woken up. You should have stayed awake. You know, that's a scary thought when something like that goes on. But how many people live life asleep? Just going through, not even aware of things and the choices they've got going on. And so our identity is based upon not darkness and, and being there and being unaware, but of light. Being exposed to the light. You know when we talk about things being exposed to the light... It's not just the idea that other people's things are exposed by the light. It's ours. Because we want to see what's going on in our hearts. Because if we see them, we can change them. We can do something about them. If my, my thinking is off track, I, the only way I change it is if I'm shown how it's off track. I want it to be exposed to the light. Because that's who I am. God has made us light in Christ. And so that's how that's going to change. Now, in, uh, oh, I had a pretty picture. I forgot to show you up there, light and darkness. Uh, another thing is the concept that he's going to bring out for us is that idea of what we have inside comes out. It'll overflow. I don't know how many, how many times some of y'all would not make good poker players. Let me just tell you up front. You may be thinking that you're just thinking it inside, but the reality is we see what you're thinking on the outside. That means you're wonderful people because that means you're, you're just who you are. But the, the idea, even those people who are great poker players and think they've got a good poker face and they're not showing anything, the reality is we live our lives, what we have inside of us comes out. The way we treat people, the way we talk. And so he, he lays it out and so we want to be filled with what we want to come out of us. So he gives a contrast in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. You see the picture he wants us to fill our lives with? Wisdom. Not, not being unwise. 
making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Fill up your heart and your mind with what God has in mind, that wisdom and what God wants of us as opposed to the foolishness and and being unwise in our lives because it'll come out. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been around in this world, we, what we have in here will overflow and come out. So he says we need to change what's in us so it will come out, that we need to be wise, not unwise. Uh, verse 18 to 20, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about singing, we, we have to acknowledge that that's what comes out of our hearts. Because he, he says, he starts, instead of being influenced by, don't get drunk, because when you're drunk, what happens? You, it shows what is influencing you and your thinking. And he says, be filled with the Spirit, where the, the Spirit of God is at the, cent, at, at the center point of our lives, that He is most important in us. And we're filled up with the Spirit, and it overflows in our singing, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. You, it, it comes out that way. And we sing and make music from our heart to the Lord. We sing to each other. We sing to God. And it's because it overflows from us. And in the singing, it, it shows what we have here. It's possible to sing without the heart, isn't it? But it's not near the same. What God wants, when we sing to the Lord, what He wants is for it to be coming from our hearts. For it to overflow from who we are. And so the thanksgiving that we have for Him, the gratitude that we want to show, the, 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 the awe of who He is and, and in worshiping, it, it flows out in how we sing. Always giving thanks to God. And so He says, be, fill our hearts and our minds with all of that and it will come out and it just be, we'll find ourselves singing to God, singing to each other, giving thanks to God for all that goes on because of that overflows. Now, we go, we're going to, let's frame this in a practical way. Well, this is all practical, but in, in bring it even closer to home. Because the reality, all of this, we can talk about change and how we think. We can talk about how we talk, how we live. But the, the, where the rubber meets the road is how we live our lives day to day. So, where do you all spend most of your time? Home. Home takes a pretty good spot. But you're on the road driving. So when you think about home, when you think about who God wants us to be, where do we show most who we are? Who knows our hearts better than anybody else? People at home. And that's where all of this really will come down because when we think about when we think about our relationships, the closer we are to somebody, you know, I can I can go to the to the store and they don't hardly ever see me. So we can, they they can think I'm the best guy in the world. But if you want to know who I am, do you know who you ask? You start talking to Beth, you start talking to the kids. Now the grandkids think I'm wonderful still, so you can't ask them yet. You talk to the people I spend time with because they'll hear how I talk when my guard is down. They'll see my attitude no matter what goes on. They'll, it shows up. They'll watch and know how I act. And so ultimately when it's in our relationships, especially in our homes, where we are with the people we're most around, that, that gets revealed most often to us. 
And so when he, when he comes around to this last section, I think this is where he says, it's not just, let's not just talk about it in theory. Let's not just talk about how you change your thinking, but how, how you're going to express it right there up close and in person in your life. Now, the thing about this section, and you know, sometimes I'll put down some plans for a sermon, and I think, oh, that sounds like it'll fit. And then I, I get into it, and I go, and I thought, you know, I could have done this a little different. But we're stuck with it now. So when we, when we look at all this, you think, well, this is this, and this is that, and this is this. But the reality is, everything in this flows together. And so we get to the end, of, uh, there in the middle section of chapter 5. And so when we looked at these last 18 to 20, these last words, uh, the scriptures, a lot, of, a lot of the Bibles will put a, cha- uh, uh, a section break right before verse 21. And so it'll say, here, when you sing songs, all, you know, I'll give all of those. Then it'll say relationships, it'll say submit to one another, a reverence for Christ. Or it'll put a break right after verse 21 and say marriage. But in the text, there's no break. In fact, there's no break because these last sentences are, well, 18 to 21, these last sentences, quote unquote, probably are better seen as one sentence. Because the command he gives here is be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make, singing and make music. Making music in your hearts to God. Giving thanks to God. Submitting to one another. If you want to see this translated, the English Standard does this, these verses correctly in the sense of the ING words. Because it's be filled with the Spirit. Speaking, singing, making, giving thanks, submitting to one another. And they all connect back up being filled with the Spirit. So when we put a break in there, what we've done is we've lost the contact, context. And so he, he's telling us all of this that he's talked about before of how we choose to live our lives is still continued here. So in verse 21, he starts out when we talk about our relationships, be filled with the Spirit. And part of that, that expression will be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ for every one of us. And so that expression of how we love our lives being filled with the Spirit won't be just seen in how we sing. It won't be just in being grateful to God for all that He does. It's also in how we live with one another and be there for one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's all the same thing. So when we keep that in mind, because then we get into verse 22 and on down, we think that's a brand new thing. But the reality, verse 22, verse 22 doesn't have a verb. Y'all remember English grammar class? When you, when you have to um, draw lines, okay, how come I've lost, what's that? Diagram. It's been too many years, a lot of good years that I hadn't had to diagram any sentences. It's good. Uh, when you go to diagram a sentence, you know, you've got the subject, you've got the predicate, and so you know you put a noun here, you've got a verb here, when you've got the, uh, the uh, direct object or whatever else is going on, you know, we've got nouns here, but you know right in the middle you've got to have a verb to make a sentence. Verse 22 does not have the word submit in it at all. Your English word translations do to help us because we're poor at Greek. But what it literally says is wives to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Now why in the world would he leave out a verb? Because it's still a continuation of verse 21. When we break it, we miss what he's telling us. Because what we do at home is what God expects of us all the time. 
And so he's not giving us some brand new thing saying, wives, I've got something new for you. He's saying, wives, you know, just like I've told everybody. Submit to one another out of reverence for, for the Lord, for Christ. Wives, to your husbands. And so when he, when he puts that together, there's, our English translations will read it as a command when the reality is it goes back up to be filled with the Spirit is the command. And it flows all together. And when we live in our homes together, that expression will be seen in how we treat one another. Our husbands, when we're wives, or wives, when we're husbands, how we express that to each other. So the idea of submitting to one another is just an expression of how we're supposed to be with one another everywhere. And so it's in the home, he says, this is where it's really going to stand out. How we treat each other as husband and wife. Now, my rule always has been, husbands, you're not allowed to read verses 22 down to, uh, where's the break point? Is it 25? Uh, until you get the commands to husbands down really well, and then your wife can sign off and allow you to read the verses before it. Uh, so when he talks to wives, it's wives he's wanting to learn. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so he, he puts a pretty good, but it's all still a flow of how we're supposed to treat each other. And so in our homes, he says, this is supposed to be an expression that if we're followers of Christ, it'll be seen in our marriages. Because the other flip side of that, and I didn't read all of this, says the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Uh, that phrase right there ought to be one that grab us. We are members of his body. We treat each other in a way that reflects who we are. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There's, there's a little flip there at the end. If we were in class, we would talk a whole long time about all of this. But the, the basic concept that we need to grab a hold of is that idea that who we are in our marriages is to express who we are in Christ. If that was all too long and you didn't read it, that's what you need to take away. Who we are in our marriages is to express who we are in Christ. And that's how it's seen. And that, that's what's going to matter most. Now, when we go into this, you think about how we guide, our, how we lead, live our, in our relationships. There's a lot of things that we do because that's the way we've always done them. Or, like, we, have you all ever, don't you all love the phrase, paying for your raising? You know, the curse that parents give their children? Well, I hope one day you have children just like you. And it's like, we need, I don't think we'll ever break that cycle because children will always be children. But the thing is, the way we raise our children tend to be Either how we're used to be, what we're used to ourselves, so we use the same thing because that's how we were raised, or if we have an extreme, sometimes we'll react and go another direction because. But it's always based upon what was before. So you can, you can follow back parents, grandparents, all the way back and watch as we raise our children, and you'll see similarities in families and all of that. And so in tradition, in that tradition, it kind of becomes part of life. So when now when we get to chapter 6, he lays out and he says, here, 
Let's lay this out because it's not just, don't assume what ought to be. First, let's back up and talk about the principle that ought to be underneath it. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. First thing we need to keep in mind when he talks to children, when do you ever become not your parents' children? Or maybe I could say, when do your children not become your children when you're a parent? Always. And this relationship still has this base of honoring. In other words, because of who God is in our lives, that that should be seen in how we treat our parents. And sometimes parents can be difficult. Did you all know that? If you're young, you don't realize your parents may be difficult when they get older, just so you know. I'm planning on it. So you all just look at it. But it still says... You be who you need to be in this relationship because of who you are in Christ. Because this is right in the sight of God as it puts it together. Then he turns around to parents. He'll say, fathers, I I, I think that maybe, now maybe we can pick on dads, but I I think in general he's talking to the mothers and dads and how we approach our kids. But he says, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't assume what ought to be because that's the way we've always done it. What you do is you look at what God wants to have accomplished and what God, the outcome God wants to have in our children and let Him be the one to guide it. That could be a challenge. But that's what He wants for us in all of that. So, here, let me give you another. What do you do when a relationship's difficult? This section is one that I've gone back and forth on how to word it best for us to understand. Because we, in, in Andrews, Texas, don't have this in the same way. But maybe difficult... And really difficult relationships might be a good spot for us. You know, like you, it doesn't matter what you do, you feel like you're you're Sisyphus pushing the rock up and it rolls back down. You push the rock up and it just never make any any gain. And so when he starts talking about slaves, when he talks to them, we have to put ourselves in that spot because a slave could not say, you know, I'm a Christian now, I'm gone. Because what happens when slaves would would run away? They generally brought back all, all in history. You know, it did not, you could hide yourself. But you were not your own based upon the law. Now you, before God, yes, you're His. But in the world, you weren't your own. So what do you do when you're in that spot where you don't have the power to go, you know, I'm tired of this job. I'm going to go work somewhere else. And so he says, it's not a matter of who the other people are. It's a matter of who you are. And so when we're in the middle of difficult relationships, when we're working with difficult people, that we don't get to choose a lot of what goes on, then we have to let God define who we are. So he says, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. You hear the reference he gives for us? You be who you are, no matter who they are. Make Christ the center of it. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Make him the center. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. When we find ourselves in that spot, we choose who we are. So if you have a difficult neighbor that you can't get out and away, you choose who you are. And things are difficult wherever you are. If it happens to be family, choose who you are and all that goes on. And verse 9, he, he comes back and reminds even those that are on the other end of the stick that they are to be accountable, they're accountable to God for how they treat others. 
And so he says, Masters, treat their sl- your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. I, I love that idea of that reminding them, yeah, by the law of the land and the government, sure you have this power, but realize you've got to give an account to the one who is above all. So you treat everybody the way they ought to be treated. You be who God wants you to be no matter where you are or who you are in life. Live that way. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting to me to look at the, the different maps for accents because, you know, based upon your accent, you can see where you've been, where you grew up, who you hang out with. Do you all know that? As somebody who's lived in the green area on California, the Midwestern section in Illinois and Iowa, down in the now the Cajun section needs to be bigger. That kind of puts it around New Orleans. I tell you what, there are Cajuns back in those swamps that are further west than just that part of Louisiana. And so, you know, Lafayette, I, I saw a lot. In fact, Port Arthur, Texas, probably is the capital of Louisiana because there's so many Cajuns there. But, you know, I've lived in that part and in Texas. And if, if you have hung around me in my life through the years, you can hear where I've lived and who I've hung around through those years. Y'all know if, you, if you're the only male employee at a Dairy Queen in Vider, Texas, with all these girls, high school girls in there working with you, and you're at the front of the store and they're all at the back and you holler back, hey, you guys, to tell them something, you know what they'll do? We're not guys. I didn't call them, well, that's not what I meant. But because of where I was from at the moment, it changed how I talked. I've been in Texas long enough, I'm learning to speak English properly. But when we have that all together, we know that that shows something about us. And I think in this section especially, what what we need to keep in mind is how we live our lives. How the way we talk. The way our attitude, our actions, everything shows if we've been hanging around with Jesus. Because it'll change us when we hear what he tells us and we listen to it and we let him change how we think and how, what goes on in our hearts. It changes how we talk. When we, let him, when we let him be the influence on our hearts, it changes the attitude that we carry around in us. When, it cha- when we allow him to be the one that we want to follow, it changes the decisions we make and the choices we make and the actions that we take in our lives so that other people will look at us and go, you've been spending time with Jesus, haven't you? That's what we're looking for. Changing our thinking, changing our hearts so that our lives show whose we are. Who you been hanging around with? Who does your life show that matters most to you? If you need prayers this evening, why don't you come now as we stand and sing?